1: Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children in special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatment, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. But,
2: but I don't hear him.
1: I don't hear him. Oh, hello. I hear you. <laughs>
0: hello.
2: <laughs> okay. We had some technical difficulties. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Hi. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ask Stephanie. So, so grateful to have him on the show tonight so he can share some of his expertise with all the listeners. And so I introduce Dr. Eric Ollander.
0: Well hi Stephanie. It's really a great pleasure to be here with you this evening.
2: It's a pleasure to have you. So tonight we're speaking about OCD and related issues in children and something that obviously you know a lot about. Um, and so I thought that it it although it seems like an obvious question to to many, I believe that It's actually something that I I think people want to know what OCD really is. I think it's a a phrase that is used very loosely. I was looking before the interview today. I was on a computer, and I was on Twitter and looking just at OCD and how people use the phrase, I'm so OCD, or I'm feeling a little OCD today. And I think it's it's a phrase that's used so loosely that people sort of lose the meaning in it. And so I wanted you to be able to... Explain to everyone what exactly OCD is.
0: Okay. Well, you're right, Steph. That the the term OCD has sort of come into the popular uh, lexicon, uh, mm. and you have shows like Monk, for example, that talk about OCD. Uh, but OCD, or Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, is a, a psychiatric illness. It's in uh, DSM-4. It's going to be in DSM-5 as well. The the psychiatric Diagnostic Manual, and it's characterized by people who have obsessions and or uh, compulsions that cause significant distress and that uh, interfere with functioning. So it it turns out that we all have some issues, uh, and sometimes we can have obsessive thoughts or compulsive uh, rituals, but clearly it's not a disorder unless, again, these things cause marked distress and they significantly interfere with functioning. I'll tell you just a little bit about what an obsession is and what a compulsion is uh, because those are the two main features of the the disorder. So obsessions are thoughts or impulses or images that generally uh, cause anxiety or discomfort, they're uh, intrusive, they're unwanted – Uh, And they're associated with some anxiety or discomfort. And so typical obsessive kind of thoughts might be uh, intrusive, disgusting uh, religious images, for example, or aggressive images, uh, uh, for example, that your parents might uh, die in a plane crash, for example, or uh, having these intrusive images of something bad happening to somebody close to you. Uh, Or it could be thoughts of uh, germs, for example, a dirt or contamination. Mm -hmm. Or it could be uh, thoughts, for example, of uh, needing things to be just perfect or even or symmetric or just so. Right. And then, uh, you know, these thoughts or the impulses or images really make people uncomfortable. And often uh, people do compulsions or rituals or behaviors in response to the thoughts, to try to neutralize the thoughts or to magically make things work out okay in the future. So, so for the e-
2: children who have OCD, do they have to have rituals or compulsions or can you be diagnosed with OCD and not have these rituals?
0: No, yeah, I mean, it turns out that you know some people may just have the uh, obsessions, the intrusive, disturbing thoughts, and not have any clear uh, behaviors that they do in response to the thoughts. Although sometimes, you know, kids can have uh mental rituals or habits like uh praying or counting or doing something silently to try to neutralize the thoughts. Okay.
2: So it's it's very interesting. So um so everyone who's listening, I know Dr. Hollander. He is my son's doctor. That's how I know him. And um I I I was at my son's conference the other day for his parent teacher conference and I was explaining to the teacher that my son had OCD and he really presents very well and is doing very well. So the teacher almost didn't believe me that he had OCD. And she used, you know, I was trying to explain to her, you know, that, you know, what it was. And she said, "I, I, it seems so hard to believe that he has OCD because he doesn't line up his, you know, his pencils. He's not organized. He doesn't make sure that he has all of his books and, I think it almost sometimes goes uh, like parents or or teachers, educators think that they look at this child and they think the word OCD has to be like so organized and overthinking and they don't realize that maybe it's those intrusive thoughts that could, especially in a school classroom environment be so distracting for a child because they're actually obsessing over something else, not the, what, the teacher might be thinking they should be obsessing over. They don't get to pick their obsession. It's just it's. it may not be about their schoolwork. It could be something totally different. So for any teachers that are listening, I think it's important for people to realize that it doesn't always present that way. Uh,
0: absolutely. In fact, you know, a lot of kids with OCD, they're really sweet, lovable uh, kids. They can be very high-functioning and very intelligent. And often, you know, they may not share these symptoms with other people, so people don't really know what it is that they're going through.
2: Right, and especially I think sometimes the children that I know or have met with or parents that I've met with, I think they try many times to hide their behaviors or hide their rituals because they're embarrassed or ashamed of them. So they're working at like 110% so that people don't know what they're thinking or going on because it makes them even more nervous that they're thinking about that.
0: Absolutely, you know many kids with uh, o c d may not even know that they have a disorder, and uh you know they may be embarrassed about these kind of symptoms, and so they don't tell other people and they as you said, they work hard to try to hide or conceal these kind of symptoms yeah so uh, so I have a question for you
2: so uh, children um they they all have normal worries and they doubts in childhood i mean that's typical some kids more than others but I think what parents really want to know are some early signs or signals that parents should look for when they're concerned that they might have OCD or related disorder to that so could you tell them some things that they maybe want to
0: look for right well you know given that the uh, symptoms might be sort of uh hidden uh and they may not be directly observable, really, or they can—they may, they may only uh, happen in certain settings. For example, you know, it's easy to overlook it. In fact, we found that, uh, you know, on average, sometimes kids can have uh, symptoms for up to 17 years before it gets the right diagnosis and uh, specific treatment. Uh, but uh, the two common things—and do they thing have to have
2: these these behaviors every single day for it to be considered? a diagnosis, or is it something that comes and goes, waxes and wanes, so, you know, it's harder to to, to see?
0: Well, that's a good point, and, you know, as, as kids go through different developmental stages, you know, sometimes uh, sort of compulsive kind of habits or rituals can be part of uh, normal development, you know, so kids often have all kinds of uh, habits, for example, before going to bed at night. Uh and that may be just part of a normal sort of developmental stage but if the symptoms really cause marked distress and they really persist and then they start to get in the way and usually the the two things that we look for is is it getting in the kids way at school or in their sort of social interactions and sometimes right. kids uh hold it together at school and then they come home and lose it Uh, at home after school, for example, sometimes the OCD symptoms can start to get in their way in terms of social uh, interactions or relationships as well. Okay.
2: Um, So another question, is OCD hereditary, and do you see it more in boys or girls?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, but OCD does tend to run within families uh, and there have been a number of different ways to look at that, and uh, so, you know, it turns out that uh, if uh, an individual within the family uh, has OCD, well, then other first-degree family members may be at uh, increased risk of uh, developing the disorder, but uh, it, these kind of symptoms are not that uncommon in the general population. and. Uh, the chances, for example, if uh, one or two parents have OCD, of having a uh, kid with OCD is much smaller uh, than actually the chance of uh, them having offspring that don't have OCD,
1: even though it's uh,
0: greater than the general population.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. It tends
0: to run within families. We we think that there are uh, significant genetic factors, but we also think that there are important uh, gene-environment interactions. And so you may sort of inherit uh, a tendency to have uh, obsessive-compulsive symptoms, but that it may or may not be expressed based on a whole range of different factors. Got it. So,
2: okay, I have a question. So we were talking before about some rituals, and I think I was reading a little bit about this also because I think parents have this question about what to do when their child is doing a ritual. So, for instance, my child has a fear of a vomit, okay? So, do you, I think sometimes parents say it's easier to avoid the discussing it and it's uh, it's just, it's easier if we can sort of like people talking about it, like, don't say anything because then we know that they're going to ask, you know, am I going to get sick? Do you think I'm going to get sick? I was just with someone and it can, it just like spirals. So, is that the is is avoiding it is that make the pro, does that make the problem worse what should parents do when they're asked to join in the rituals you know like how many times before it's no sweetie you're not going to get sick how many times should parents say that or what what should they do
0: right well so it, it turns out that many kids with OCD for example have uh, certain fears and it's natural for kids to avoid things that make them uncomfortable or cause some anxiety or make them feel that something is disgusting, for example, like vomit. Uh, and uh, it doesn't become an issue really until there starts to become either a, you know, a lot of distress because let's say kids have to eat lunch and mm-hmm. uh, it gets upsetting, for example, in the lunchroom Sitting next to kids who are eating, for example, where there starts to be a lot of uh, avoidant behavior, so the right. the, the child uh, starts to avoid a whole range of uh, situations that they feel might trigger whatever it is that they are fearful of uh, that may make them uncomfortable. So the the, the advice to parents really is, uh, do we sort of give in uh, to right. prevent you know kids getting upset? Uh, or do we uh, push kids to face the things that may be difficult and that may make them uncomfortable? Uh, and one of the issues or the, the issues around a, sort of a stimulus response is that when people face certain situations, they get uncomfortable. It's uh, sort of natural to want to avoid those situations. But then the more that uh, they give into the avoidant behavior, you know, the more and more ingrained that habit of avoidance becomes. And so one of the right. ideas, for example, with cognitive behavior therapy is getting kids to, you know, face the things that make them uncomfortable, sort of relabel the situation. You know, this is not something that's horrible. This is just my uh, OCD. It's a it's a bully. I have to mm-hmm. fight against that bully. I can relabel it as OCD. I can uh, go ahead and uh, face the bully. I I can uh, resist doing the normal habits or rituals that I might want to do to neutralize that, like the avoidant behavior or other kinds of habits or rituals to kind of neutralize the fear. And then I can sort of refocus my uh, attention into other meaningful activities uh, and try to get them to do the things that they need to do, see that they can sort of face those fears, they can overcome them, and they can get a sense of accomplishment.
2: Yeah, I think it's so important because I think that parents sometimes take the easy way out and they they want to avoid it because they are trying to avoid the conflict with their child for the fact that maybe they're going to act out from it. But really dealing with it head on and letting the child face their fear in the long run is going to pay off big time. But I think it's just—I think it's important for parents to realize that that is really the, the best way to go when when dealing with
0: OCD. Right. I mean, the, the the issue about the rituals is that they're sort of a quick fix, but that right. that anxiety and discomfort just creeps right back, and the the habits of the rituals or the avoidance just get more ingrained, and so right. being able to kind of face those fears uh, and sort of not not do the rituals or put off doing the habits. Uh, and make sure that your world doesn't get smaller and smaller and smaller. The the big issue is to sort of reclaim all of the kind of activities that uh, children should be getting involved in. They should be going to school or going to camp or making friends or going out and playing and not Mm -hmm. letting their world get more restricted. Absolutely.
2: So um, talking about avoiding, so I think parents moving, because I want to talk a little bit about medicine, which is something you know a lot about. Um, And I think that parents who come to meet me many times are trying at first to avoid um, medicine um, until it's absolutely necessary, which is, you know, it's not, it's a second resort. Um, They're nervous about it. They're nervous that their child is going to be on medicine. And then it's a path that they can't ever get off medicine. Um, But, Many times there's points where medicine is is very needed and is extremely helpful and I wanted you to explain a little bit why why it can be so beneficial for children.
0: Okay. Well, absolutely. And and just to follow up on something you had asked before. So, you know, both boys and girls can get OCD. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out that boys are more likely to have a earlier onset oh, than girls. Like and at boys- what point, what age? well uh you know it could happen uh anywhere from age uh, 5 or age 7 uh up to uh around the time of sort of puberty and uh, adolescence uh you know boys tend to also have some tick like symptoms and uh sometimes they can have some uh subtle attentional issues as well you know girls certainly can get uh ocd they often develop it a little bit later, uh, and um, so among adults, it's equal males and females. But among uh, younger kids, boys tend to have an earlier age of onset. And so one question is, yeah, when when does it make sense to uh, use medicine to try to deal with these symptoms? So each of these decisions really should be made working with your doctor. And there's always, for for any kind of decision like this, sort of a risk versus benefit ratio analysis. I think for kids, it makes a lot more sense to do some cognitive behavior therapy. So have kids face their fears, resist doing their habits, and get involved in other kinds of uh, healthy sort of patterns or behaviors. Uh, If kids uh, have a hard time tolerating the cognitive behavior therapy, or they're unable to follow through with the cognitive behavior therapy because it makes them too uncomfortable. Or let's say they have a comorbid or accompanying problems. So, so let's say the kids become very depressed as a result of the OCD. Or let's say they have attention deficit disorder and it's hard for them to follow through with the homework assignments, let's say, for the cognitive behavior therapy or they just don't respond to the CBT, then, you know, often we will uh, add medication. The uh, the you know, American Psychiatric Association practice guidelines that I was involved in drafting say that there are really three first-line treatments. So individuals can be treated with uh, cognitive behavior therapy first, uh, medication first, or a combination of uh, medicine plus cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, Many of us think that people can perhaps have the best response with a combination of medicines and cognitive behavior therapy, but I do think that for kids, we'll usually use psychological treatments first and then um, add on medications uh, next. And, again, that's if uh, kids can't really tolerate the cognitive behavior therapy, they're not getting benefit, they're having some kind of comorbid or accompanying problem like depression, for example, where they're just not making progress.
2: What is the youngest age that it's feasible for a child to be on medicine for OCD?
0: Well, so we will often treat kids starting at around age uh, five and up. know, again, usually we'll use some psychosocial treatments first and then reserve uh, medication probably for the second step. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, Kids actually uh, respond very well to medicine. Uh, Adding medicine can have a huge impact. So you can really get substantial improvement in both the obsessions and the compulsions, that it can really decrease the discomfort and improve overall level of functioning. And it turns out that uh, if we put kids on medicine and they get significant improvement in the severity of the compulsions or the obsessions, then it actually has a big impact in terms of their overall level of disability and their quality of life. And, and I would it, say
2: they would probably get a lot more out of the cognitive behavioral therapy if they were on the medicine and it was working and they were feeling better.
0: Absolutely. So the, they, they certainly go together, and so kids are more likely to you know take risks and uh, face things that are difficult and be able to resist doing the habits and sort of uh, relabel these things as OCD and get involved in other activities if you uh, decrease some of the intense sort of anxiety and discomfort associated with it.
2: I think that parents sometimes, the Internet is a wonderful thing, and it can be your worst enemy. I think parents are looking online and they're seeing these worst-case scenarios and side effects, and it could be just a small portion of people that can write so, so much, um, and it scares parents. And, you know, are there really um, a lot of side effects that you see from children taking these kinds of medicine? Because I think parents need to hear from someone who actually is seeing it firsthand.
0: Right. So the first step in terms of medicine are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And there are five different uh, serotonin reuptake inhibiting medicines that are actually approved for the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder by the Food and Drug Administration. And that uh, most of those have also gotten specific approvals for kids with OCD, so pediatric uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh and for any treatment, you really want to, you know, weigh sort of the benefits and compare them to any kind of side effects. So, first of all, it's important for uh, parents to recognize that these medicines actually take a little bit of time to work. It could take uh, eight it's to twelve weeks, me. right? And so, if you if you get started on a medicine and you think you're going to get uh, benefit for your child for the OCD right away, uh, that is going to sort of give you sort of an inappropriate kind of time scale. You won't really understand what the expected course is. But after about 8 to 12 weeks, there, there's usually a 25 to 35 percent reduction in the severity of the obsessions and compulsions, uh, which we think it can be uh, associated with significant improvement. And then again, you know, Kids may be uh, more responsive to the cognitive behavior therapy as well. So first thing is, are are they having a significant improvement after 8 or 12 weeks or not? If they're not getting a benefit, then you wouldn't want to continue the treatment. If they are getting a substantial benefit, then you want to assess whether or not uh, they're having any kind of side effects and whether the benefits clearly outweigh any kind of side effects. Is there
2: ever any time that you see an immediate side effect where you would say, get off the medicine right away, this is not working?
0: Well, it's important for families to know that the side effects, there are some side effects that occur relatively quickly but are transient, so they go away, whereas the therapeutic benefit of these medicines are actually delayed so that it, it could take 8 so to 12 weeks. So it's normal
2: for a negative you know, possible side effect, initially, and then that will go away.
0: Right. So the most common kind of side effects are, you know, sometimes kids can get a little bit of an upset stomach. So we usually have kids maybe uh, take the medicine in the morning after they eat breakfast, as an example. And that may happen for the first uh, week or so and then uh, go away. So kids can get a little nausea, for example, which is interesting because you mentioned that uh, your son, that was one of his fears, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the idea of nausea. But it's it's clear that that's a kind of a side effect that seems to be uh, sort of a, an immediate side effect but is sort of transient. And if you kind of know what to expect and sort of the time course that it may last, then, then you can sort of right. deal with that. Sometimes a, another side effect that you want to watch for for kids is kids can um, sometimes either get a little bit tired or they can have a little insomnia. So uh, you know, if it's sort of keeping them up at night, then you don't want to give them the medicine at nighttime. You give it in the morning, or if it's making them tired, for example, you might switch the medicine to the evening.
2: So I think it's important for parents to realize that they, these there are some initial things for them to look after. I think parents sometimes are and they're highly anxious themselves because of their child, maybe they're in they're in a bad way right now. And I think they are so hyper aware of everything that's going on with their child. So I think it's important for them to realize that it it takes a little time and they really need to bear with it because the benefits could take like you said, they could take twelve weeks, it could take more, it could take a few you know, until they really are seeing some significant Improvement, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's why uh, education is so important. Because if if you go over, uh, you know, what OCD is all about, what the different treatment options are, if you go over the time course in terms of when you expect to see a response and what are the type of side effects, which side effects may occur early on and tend to go away, then you'll have a much better sort of. guide in terms of getting started, and you'll have sort of realistic expectations. And also you'll be able to communicate effectively with your doctor to try to deal with anything that uh, may come up. Uh, I do think that uh, the doctor-patient relationship is important because you want to make sure first uh, that the doctor has a good understanding of uh, what your child is going through. I think you want to make sure that the diagnosis is correct, that it's not some other uh, problem because we have specific treatments for different specific disorders. It's not just, you know, one treatment for all conditions that kids have. So you want to make sure that the uh, individual who's doing the treatment is knowledgeable, that they have taken a, a full history, mm-hmm. including a medical history and sort of a, a family history, which will sometimes give important Clues in terms of which treatments may be helpful uh that they've assessed for other comorbid or accompanying problems because that may influence how a kid may respond to uh different treatments right and then uh that you've sort of gone over what the expectations are
2: right, and I think it's important for parents to take very copious notes and really they they are they're seeing their child more than a doctor, a pediatrician a teacher, they're the ones that are, really know them the best. And so they're, I always say when they're going to have an appointment with a doctor that they need to be able to be very clear about what's going on so the doctor can, if they are prescribing medicine, give them medicine based on really what what the parents are explaining is going on.
0: Absolutely. And I think you really want to understand how is it that these particular symptoms are uh, getting in the way? So what is it that the uh, child would really want to be doing that they have a hard time doing, for example? What's their motivation to do things that may initially be difficult, like the cognitive behavior therapy, may, may give them some discomfort, but that uh, they're highly motivated to achieve something and they're willing to do the hard work in order to get better?
2: Right. We're going to go over time uh, just for a few minutes because I know there's so much to get to. And I have one other important um, thing that I wanted to speak to you about. So if you don't mind, and it will go, it won't be live, but it will be on iTunes. And uh, most people will be able to listen to it and will listen to it um, after online. So I wanted to talk to you about pandas, which has a lot, you know, in the OCD world, it's, I think, getting a lot more attention lately. And, um, you know, and I, I know a lot about it, especially, too, because my son was diagnosed five years ago with pandas. And I think having to do with medicine, it is so important that we talk about it because um, I think par- there are so many children getting sometimes maybe misdiagnosed because they're going in to have their child um, evaluated for possible OCD symptoms and um, they're being treated for OCD symptoms, um, masking some of the behaviors that the child could be doing instead of really seeing what that there could be an infection. So I guess first we just want to explain what PANDAS is. And um, just if you could explain a little bit about how the treatment really is so different and and varies between just regular OCD and children who have sudden OCD um, symptoms from PANDAS.
0: Right. So PANDAS is uh, an acronym for uh, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infection i so was happy what, you said
2: that better than me. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what that means is that, you know, sometimes kids get strep throat. Uh sometimes in response to that strep, if it's uh inadequately treated, for example, that uh kids can develop antibodies against the protein coat uh for the streptococcal bacteria, but those antibodies might uh recognize uh, their own tissue. So, for example, in the old days, uh people used to develop a rheumatic fever, so the antibodies would bind to the heart and then individuals would have uh cardiac related type side effects. Uh, and nowadays, uh you know, it's more commonly recognized that individuals can have antibodies that cross the blood-brain barrier and may uh, bind to regions of the brain, particularly uh one region of the brain called the basal ganglia or the striatum. And that that uh, sort of binding of antibodies can be associated with some inflammation or uh, swelling and could activate or turn on the activity of that brain region and turn on these uh, frontal striatal brain circuits that may be associated with things like compulsions, for example, or obsessive thoughts or tick-like behaviors. I think the key to making the diagnosis of PANDAS is one is a a good history. Was there evidence of uh, strep and then a sudden onset or worsening of obsessions or compulsions or ticks or uh, attention deficit or disruptive kind of behaviors? Was there sort of a waxing and waning of the course associated with infection? Did you culture strep in the throat, or did you measure uh, anti-strep antibodies in the blood? Uh, And if you get a history that is consistent in terms of the time course, and you can measure things in the blood like these anti-strep antibodies, often the the first-line treatment of PANDAS would be uh, antibiotics, generally uh, sort of high-potency, higher-dose antibiotics for more Extended period of time, and uh, so like
2: extended. How like, I think sometimes parents say, "Oh, they have strep. It's it's a week or two weeks." What is really ne- needed in order for a child to to be on an, an extended dose of antibiotics?
0: Right. Well, that's a it's a good question. And usually, the, you know, the treatment of uh, strep throat, for example, is often for just a few days duration, or a week mm-hmm. or ten days. Uh, it turns out that uh, if individuals have had uh, exacerbation of OCD symptoms or tics uh, associated with a uh, acute strep infection, that often will, you know, treat kids for a longer period of time. Uh, some kids may get a very rapid improvement in their symptoms, and others it it may take a period of time to get the full sort of remission of symptoms. So sometimes we may treat an initial. Uh, Course of about three months, rather than just seven days, for example.
2: And so, I think importantly, if a child, um, if a doctor wasn't sure, and they said, you know, we think it's pandas, and they put them on um, a week or ten days of an antibiotics and they didn't respond right away to an antibiotic, does that mean they don't have pandas?
0: not necessarily no because uh, you know sometimes the treatment may be you know for a longer duration than uh, a right. week that may I not be I think that's a important adequate, that people
2: hear right, that because I think trial. sometimes they they think okay well they have heard and which is true i mean in, in in my case personally, I, my son was very receptive to being on antibiotics right away. But some children, it takes time. Maybe they've had, maybe they have a higher level of strep in their body, and they need they need the medication for a longer duration of time. So I think it's important for doctors also who are not sure, who are learning a little bit more about the disorder, for them to hear um, that that that's important. That it's not just a telltale sign after such a short time that it, it may not it may take long. May may take longer.
0: Right. Well that's absolutely true. And in fact, uh, you know, there's information uh that people can read about pandas and uh you know not all pediatricians, for example, or even uh pediatric psychiatrists or neurologists may be fully informed of all of the available treatments for pandas. Uh, my own times.
2: pediatrician who we went to was not and they were one of you know one of the really good pediatricians and they were supposed to be highly recommended and they really didn't know and they tested um which i think is important for parents to know that there are blood tests um and they didn't test for both blood tests so there was an ASO test and an anti DNA B test they only tested for the ASO which came back normal so the anti DNA B came back extremely high so I think um, it's important for doctors, too, that that they read up on it, as you said. There's always more information that's becoming available to it. And are you doing, I think you are doing a study coming up. Do you want to give any information about that?
0: Well, um, we're very interested in uh, being able to measure uh, specific antibodies that may uh, bind to the brain. I mean, the currently available laboratory tests are, things like the, as you mentioned the uh the ASO and the anti DNA B which are uh, anti strep antibodies there are a range of uh new assays that can be run looking at anti brain uh antibodies uh because it it turns out that uh things such as strep may uh trigger this immune or inflammatory response and those uh immune or inflammatory response may uh bind to specific uh receptors or regions in the brain and there are new tests that are being developed uh to to measure these different uh anti-strep antibodies great well so i'm sure
2: anyone who has questions um can email Me and as the study um, gets underway, I'm sure people will be really interested about it. So, um, is there anything else that you wanted to share about pandas? I mean, I think it it just it it was just part of the topic of OCD. I thought parents would really
0: get you know really want to
2: know about. Well,
0: you know, I think it's important for individuals to to realize that uh, you know there may be environmental factors and genetic factors that can contribute to the onset of uh, OCD, but there may be different types of uh, symptoms that kids present with, or different subtypes, and there may be different sort of uh, courses of illness as well. Sometimes we have to uh, modify the treatments a little bit based on the type of symptoms or the accompanying problems. So uh, if kids have uh, tics, for example, we may need to treat the ticks uh, If they have attentional issues, sometimes we'll treat the attention. Uh, if there is a uh, PANDAS-like uh, trigger for the acute onset of the OCD, then we really need to treat the strep or the inflammatory process as well.
2: I agree. Well, I, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out tonight. I think that their parents and teachers, educators, I hope doctors are listening to because I think that they have still a lot to learn um, on on this and specific issues um, that doctors are always learning more about. So I appreciate it. Um, I truly, I, I think it, it's important for parents to remember that knowledge is power, and that the more informed you are as a parent when speaking with a teacher, a family member, a, a pediatrician, a, a doctor, that. When you feel that you're in the know and you understand your child's disorder, it it really it it makes it makes the situation better for a parent. So, thank no, you it for I
0: Absolutely uh, agree, Steph. I think uh, sort of early awareness is really key, and early intervention uh, can have a big impact in terms of the long term course how people do.
2: Yeah, I I I, I agree. It, I know as a mother myself, it really it has paid off. Um, so thank you again, and also I wanted to mention for the Coffee Clatch that Coffee Clatch is accepting items for one more week for the Sandy Disaster Relief. Please go to www.thecoffeeclatch.com to find out how you can help. Again, thank you, Dr. Eric Hollinger, so much for joining us this evening. It was truly a privilege to interview you. And um, if you have any questions about tonight's interview, um, you can visit my website, www.ask a s k s t e f a n i e dot com ask stephanie for any questions you have uh, regarding this interview um thank you so much for listening and thanks again
0: good night thanks seha